The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, November 10th at Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election. Our podcast for today is Panel 3, A Look Ahead. Our panelists are Nathan Click of Click Strategies, Jody Hicks, the Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, Victoria Rome, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Rob Stutzman of Stutzman Public Affairs. Our moderator for today's panel is Dan Moraine, longtime journalist in California and author of Camel's Way, which just came out uh, a couple years ago. We're going to go ahead and get started in just one second, but first, let's thank our sponsors for the event. Support for Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Whiteman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thanks so much, Tim, and and thanks thanks to Open California for for putting this on. I wanted to get to Nathan Click. Uh, uh, first, um, uh, you had a uh, you had a pretty good night last night, uh, but uh, or two nights ago, um, <laughs> Governor Newsom. It seems like it seems like just yesterday, um, Governor Newsom won easily as was widely expected. Um, Katie Porter, not so much. I think um, she's going to pull it out. Honestly, think, yeah, she's going to pull it last out. Last night she got uh, there was a three thousand vote count. She won about sixty percent of the vote by mail. She's adding to her margin, and there's a lot more vote by mail to count still. So I think she's going to be. I think she's going to be good. I think there's no better economic messenger in our party than Katie Porter. Um, and I think you know she really built a brand with her constituents um, that was separate from. Uh, her party, uh, they know that she's going to fight for them and she's on their side and she does that better than almost anyone else in this party. Uh, so I think she's going to be in a strong position heading forward. So uh, as go Katie Porter, so goes the House. Does this mean that that uh, the Dems are going to hold the House? I mean, I, I still think that's a pretty far, uh, it's a pretty hard hurdle to climb. But I think with folks like Katie Porter and Mike Levin, um, if they win, which it looks like Katie will, uh, we're going to be pretty solid. And you look over at a House majority, a House Republican majority with one or two or three, uh, a three person margin, that's going to be chaos. Uh, you're going to see Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, all of the very extreme right wing folks uh, basically have total veto control over whatever Kevin McCarthy does. And it'll be, you know, it'll be bad for America. And I think you know, it'll be pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Well, L Lauren Boebert won't be part of that mix, I guess. Um, uh, Rob, I'd like to ask you uh, the the significance of of a Kevin McCarthy speakership should he become speaker for California, and then to the group um, the significance of Nancy Pelosi not being speaker for California. Well, if we get to a McCarthy speakership. Uh, how big an if is that, Rob? How big an if? Yeah. 
Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a Republican majority, but I think it's narrow. Uh, I still think it's likely to be Kevin. Uh, you know, how much is the uh, so-called Freedom Caucus going to try to extract um, remains a question. But there has to be another candidate. And there is not one at the moment. Scalise announced today for, for leader, not, not speaker. Tr you know, the thinking was Trump could, could drop at least Stefanik in there, for instance, and disrupt things. But I don't know that Trump's in that position, you know, today with his standing, even within that conference. So, yeah, I would think the McCarthy speakership is very likely. Obviously keeps the speakership in California, which is a unique succession historically. Uh, what it means for the state. Uh, it's probably good for a lot of interest in California. I mean, Kevin has a very strong uh, donor base here. And I think it, you know, to the extent the Republican Party keeps fighting to keep its head above water and make, you know, marginal gains where they can, it's it'll be it'll be good for for Republicans in the state to have Kevin because Kevin's very interested in California. Well, what are the policies that 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 would affect California? I mean, clearly he cares. He, he ought to care a lot about water. Um uh, he ought to care about some of the environmental issues that, that are pending before the state. Well, you've, you've talked, well two, two of our largest industries, agriculture and energy, um, I think will have significant interest in the, the direction that the Republican majority would go. Well, Victoria, um, I see you're on mute. Um, uh, Prop 30 did not fare very well. Uh, for fo folks who already have forgotten, this would have uh, uh, imposed a tax on very high earners uh, to fund EVs and other environmental uh, issues. Um, where do you go from here with, with, given that Prop 30 flamed out? Yeah, first of all, um, thanks, Dan, and it's great to be with all of you and smart strategists in the state. And and yes, we're very disappointed that Prop 30 didn't make it, recognizing that ballot measures are just tough to pass in California. And um, we had we had very strong polling until the end, and the governor's opposition definitely hurt our efforts. So we, of course, need to continue exploring all paths. The reason that our organization strongly supports is because we know we need, we're going to sustained source of funding, California's transfer is huge. And to transition that and to provide the infrastructure needed to charge those vehicles takes sustained funding. We've tended to struggle through the state budget process year to year, making sure we have that sustained funding. So we'll keep at it. We'll keep working in his administration. We are grateful that some of the budget surplus over the last couple dedicated to climate and particularly electric vehicle incentives. I think that, you know, it's really a loss and we'll need to keep exploring ways, not only through the state budget, but with the federal IRA funds coming down. Um, we're heading into a special session dealing with, uh, with oil, uh, the oil industry. Um, to the panel, um, do you see any appetite in the legislature to raise a tax given what happened with Prop 30? Well, Bob? it's not, not just Prop 30, it's some of these legislative results. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if Cooley doesn't come back, if Gray doesn't win, even the quirk syllabus, even if those Gray, are near Gray, together. You mean Adam Gray? And yeah, it, they, they all were, what, was, what they were getting hammered with was gas tax. 
So I, you know, I, even if those are near death experiences, I think there'll be very little appetite um, as Democrats convening, especially a lot of new members, seeing this as the first thing they need to do. And remember, the Republicans will be able to juxtapose, you know, this complicated windfall profits tax, which has no case study of ever working with what they've been proposing for months or a year, which is suspend gas tax. Um, Nathan, how, how are you feeling about a tax? Hey, I, you know, you look at these record profits from Enron, you look at, or excuse me, not Enron, from BP, Chevron, uh, there's a voter appetite. Absolutely. There is a uh, there is a resonant appetite. I think Governor Newsom, folks like Katie Porter, um, that really led our party, led Democrats um, uh, on an issue that that, you know, three months ago, Democrats were looking at each other and saying, how do we message this? How do we how do we handle this? And I think uh, folks like Katie and Governor Newsom uh, really taking it to the oil companies is. Uh, and providing a counter message on inflation is one of the reasons why uh, Democrats are doing so much better than uh, than you would have expected a few weeks ago. Katie Porter actually put gas prices in her ads and had uh, a whole slate of uh, L.A. media market, L.A. TV uh, commercials on rising gas prices and how the big oil companies are to blame. So, I, you know, I have to disagree with. With Robin, I think that there's a real appetite for. We don't know that Katie Porter is going to win. The fact that we don't even know that, I think it's difficult to hold her campaign up as a success. I mean, I, that's a lean, that was a lean D seat that moved all the way to competitive and remains a complete toss up. I just don't see any indication from the election results that the, the Porter campaign is some type of clear indication. Uh, on this issue, or frankly, many others economically for the Democrats moving forward. She, like well, I said before, feeling really good about where she's going to be with this vote by mail. Okay, I, I, I'm sure so you are, one, Nathan, but it's a toss. It, it looks like a toss up at this point. So, Jody, one one issue that that um, clearly wasn't a toss up was an issue you care most deeply about: abortion rights and Prop One, and. Um, uh, it, it is quite apparent, as you've noted, that, that Prop 1 uh, outpolled in, in, um, uh, in many rural states, many, sta many counties, excuse me, many rural, more rural counties, counties that voted for Brian Dolly. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I almost want to go on a I told you so tour well, <laughs> two ahead. days later um, for everyone. Um, I think that if you look across the board, we were the highest vote getter, right? But for any any initiative, any candidate, anything in California, um, abortion rights is clearly a winning message. But not only that, it was important to people. Our exit polling across the country is showing that it was the motivating fact for why people got out and vote, especially younger folks. And I think there was this misnomer that people were going to care about it right after Dobbs and then it was going to die back down as if it's like a popularity issue and people like pink or they don't like pink. But the truth is, it's an economic issue. I think there was people like Katie Porter who were able to talk about that effectively. But we know for young people, 
you can't talk about things like inflation and expect that to be top of mind when we have a country where we don't have universal child care, we don't have universal health care. And if you're talking about contraception, birth control, and whether or not you'd be forced to have a child, those are economic issues, those are kitchen discussion issues, and it's top of mind for people. And we knew that, I don't think everybody knew that, but I also just wanna point out, it was, I asked my um, team this morning because it felt like five years ago, but it was actually only last January that we launched the Say Abortion campaign to have a conversation where people needed to start talking about abortion and not have this, you know, old school type of thinking that that was something we didn't talk about. We talked about only certain things that is not a winning issue. And now it's on the front page of every newspaper about abortion rights. So it's very quickly that people are understanding what I think most people of reproductive age do understand is that this is a, it's a, it's a huge lifetime economic opportunity trajectory of your future issue and it's not going away so we're i'm happy that prop one one i think the next though what we had talked about was when we look at voter turnout and why people voted for prop one but maybe also voted for brian dolly there's a small percentage of the electorate that did that why that happened. And I think the next conversation, remember, we're only four months post Dobbs, but as we continue to see the impact and continue to have to have the conversation that it also matters what candidates you elect. We are not, we're not free and clear because we have Prop 1, it's important, but we're not, we're not in the clear that there's not a federal ban. They've said as much that they'll try and do that. We know that's true. And we'll have to continue that conversation and, and talking to voters about that being a continued threat. So there are many reasons why Republicans are um, have an inability to win statewide in California. Um, I think perhaps one reason is the party's collective stance on abortion rights. Rob, do you see that a, an anti-choice anti-abortion rights uh, uh, Republican could win statewide? I mean, you haven't won a statewide well, race since 2006, but well, could you I, win? I guess I would answer it this way. I, I don't think a Republican could win statewide unless they were pro-choice. Um, the last Republican governors were pro-choice, uh, the, the, the last two. So I, I think that's a threshold to be elected. I don't know that it drives... Um, I don't know if, in, I mean, the biggest problem Republicans have to being elected is there's twice as many Democrats. <laughs> so it's that, it's that math problem. But I mean, to pick up on Jody's point, I think, what, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I'll be interested to see what the Prop 1 results were in Mike Garcia's district, where Christy Smith ran on abortion against him. The D-trip pulled out of there about three weeks ago, and they had to go turn to defense, which was, which was the right decision. You know, it really turned the election around for them to go heavy on defense and give up their offense, but Garcia trounced her. My guess is Prop 1 probably passes in that district. So, you know, there's an example of that, that paradox that I think Jody, Jody's talking about. But I think again, when we're four months out, it's just, it's we've had Roe v. Wade for 50 years, like our entire generation, we've had this protection and this backstop. And so I think you pull that out, and it and, and folks are mad. We're seeing that across the country. I mean, every initiative that we fix 
and they all won decidedly. Like if you put it on the ballot, people want that protection back. I think what is what we'll continue to see though, and this will be, we'll have to do all of this analysis is are people going to, and I think the answer is yes, by the way, but when they also have the full understanding that that also has to translate to candidates now, it's it's not enough to just vote for the thing. Like if they could vote for the Supreme Court to reverse that decision, they would vote for that. The, across yeah. the country, they would vote for that, but you can't, you have to vote for your policymaker to protect you right now. And well, that's and not what we've had to do in the past. So this is, Completely agree with Jody. And this is what Dobbs did. It's like, okay, states, do your thing. And now it's become a political issue again where representation matters and we're seeing the way it's playing out. And so, you know, in some ways, uh, this process should help America find its equilibrium. You're going to have different extremes in certain different states, I'm sure. But this is really what the court intended with Dobbs. And Republicans by and large, didn't react to it the right way. And they're, they're paying some, some price for that, I think, in this election cycle and may continue to in the future. Talk of a national band is contrary to what Dobbs is. The point of Dobbs is, okay, states go. Well, California did. Kansas did. And other, Michigan did. Other states have as well. Now, interestingly, you know, no governor lost. Um, there's not a single Republican governor that lost their reelect, and no governor may lose uh, unless Sisolak doesn't come through in Nevada. So, it, you know, it's interesting. We now go to the state level on this issue, and yet it wasn't all that definitive in any of those races isn't clear to me. But I say yet. I do. I say yet. Yeah. Because, it, again, we're going to see the impact. It's also, I think what states are figuring out, there's 17 states that have instituted a ban. We expect that number to go to 26. So half the country... Um, the impact is yet to be really seen. We're also, they're figuring out that it's really hard to legislate. And so what they think that they could legislate is not proving true when you have people with pregnancy outcomes and their doctor can't treat them or is calling their lawyer. And we're going to see that happen more and more. We're going to see the impact of doctors not being able to get trained in half the country. I mean, there, there is an actual policy impact and we don't see it four months out. We'll see it a year out. We'll see it two years out. And so I think that it, it is true how voters think as they, they think top down. And I do think we'll see a difference in my, the gubernatorial elections. Later. Here's my hunch when, when all said and done. I, I think it's just so hard to turn out younger voters when your parties uh when your party has the presidency over the midterms it looks at least by the results that it was higher than 2014 uh higher than 2010 which were bloodbath years i think three weeks ago most people would have said that uh you know we were basically in a 2014 or a 2010 situation and i think you know the abortion question uh has a big role to play and that again we'll see when when we can do all of the real analysis and we actually have the vote in California. Um, but uh, and don't forget it disproportionately impacts certain communities more than others, right? And um, just at the exit polls, I just heard from our national office that in those battleground states, for 82% of black voters in exit polls, abortion was their reason for, for turning out the vote. So we know what happens in battleground states where those um, communities end up making the difference. And this is a, a huge issue.
for anyone that is greatly impacted. And we still have a horrible maternal mortality rate in this, um, especially for Black women. And then to pile this on top of it, those numbers are just going to get worse. Hmm. Not sure that 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 played out in Georgia. I mean, I understand that Georgia's, you know, politics are a little bit different, but, you know, it's not as if Warnock is, is I mean, we have no idea how that's going to turn out in the runoff, but Kemp, uh, uh, Kemp yeah. won in, by a huge margin. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, well, it's going to be a state-by-state state issue, but but how how do you square Georgia's result with, with the view that, that this is an issue that affects young people, it affects, well, it affects us all, but it affects young people more directly. I did, so I did the 2014 Georgia Senate race. So I have a little bit of experience in Georgia. Kemp, you know, in the 2020 election fiasco, uh, really branded, you know, created a brand for himself as an independent by standing up to Trump and counting the ballots. I think there was really all of the polling from that race from the very beginning showed that, uh, you know, independents, moderates gave him a lot of credit for standing up to somebody in his own party who was trying to literally overthrow the election. So I think that that's more of a function of that than uh, uh, I think the Senate race is a really good one to to focus on on the abortion question. You know, we all saw what happened two years ago in the Georgia Senate race when it went to a runoff and it was the slimmest majority. Uh, you know, any marginal voter that turned out, younger voter that turned out because they wanted to protect their right to choose. I mean, it's a net win for for Warnock and and helped him get uh, into a runoff in what could have been a bad year for Democrats. Um, well, Victoria, we'll get to you in a minute. But um, uh, but Jody, how do you, how do you square the the Georgia vote with with the view that that this is an issue that impacts um, some people more than others directly, at least? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... I don't, I don't necessarily, I, I think it's a little early to see what, um, and we have to look at the the rest of turnout. Um, but I do think that that is why people turned out to vote. Um, I, you know, clearly it wasn't enough. We would have liked a solid win and not have to go into a run up. But I, but I think it made a difference in, in where the vote turnout was. Um, but again, I just, I just still think that four months out, people are still getting their, their footing on what they need to do and how they need to vote and what those patterns are going to look like to fully, you know, know how they're going to protect their rights right now. I just think it's, we're seeing that even in California where it's very clear that people want abortion rights. That's very clear here in California that translation into who and what they need to vote for exactly it, it four months out is is not it's not clear for votes and i think um again if we were able to, to put up a supreme court vote that would win hands down across the country too um i i believe it would i believe people don't want it to be a state-by-state -state issue they want a protection so they'll vote state by state i think an initiative in georgia would have passed um like ours did too it's that getting people to also vote for candidates that will protect their rights right now. And that's what they have. I, I, you know, we are right now with the Supreme Court, we are always an election away from losing rights. It was probably true before, but it's true like immediately right now. We're not, 
we're an election away. Every single election, that's what that means, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. And um, people's voting patterns haven't really shown that yet. So Victoria, and you're on mute, um, <laughs> the, um, the issue of abortion winds people up on both sides. It's, it is a, um, you know, it, it is a, an election driver. You, I'm sure it's an issue you care about as well, but the issue that you're most directly involved in climate change, while people care deeply about it, and we all see the impact of climate change, doesn't drive turnout the way some other issues do, crime, abortion rights. Um, how, do you, how do you talk about the issue in a way that, that it starts driving turnout? That's there's a great question. There's, a, there's an assumption in that question, but I think, yeah. I think the assumption is borne out. Well, first, I just wanted to say that um, I'm proud to report that our organization, NRDC, and the NRDC Action Fund also supported Prop 1, and we see women's reproductive choices as a women's rights issue, as a human rights issue, and just felt it was really important that we also go on record um, in support of that measure, even though, as you know, it is in our core mission, but definitely uh, something that that we all care deeply about. And I think as far as your question, I believe it, climate is becoming more on the forefront of voters' minds, especially as we're seeing the impacts more directly every year here in California, but also in other states. North Carolina experienced severe flooding. Florida did this year, although that didn't seem to matter in their election. Um, but I think that it is moving up in terms of the ranking of issues that people care about. And we'll see that, unfortunately, we continue to see the impacts of climate change. Um, but when you were asking about what, uh, whether a Republican could win statewide too, I was thinking, you know, could a climate denier win state California? And I don't think they could. And we've definitely seen a difference in working just with the state legislators here that Republicans here don't tend to, to be climate deniers. I mean, they, they have to acknowledge that it's happening. It's more about how do you address it? How do you deal with it? And, you know, let the economy, let innovation take care of it versus having the state play a role tends to be more than. So I guess I would say that I think it is an issue that especially young people care about. And It'll, I'll be interested to hear what my fellow panelists think about the youth vote here. It sounds like it was a little less previous years, which may have also hurt Prop 30. But I think across the country, I think it was definitely a motivator for the higher youth turnout that we saw. Well, I could jump in. I, you know, I've, uh, as many of us have on this panel, worked for a lot of um, statewide uh, constitutional officers who are running on the ballot consistently. A, the, a contrasting message on climate change, even against somebody who believes that climate change is real, but you know probably hasn't a Republican who hasn't really shown up on the solution side uh, is by far one of the top testing and most persuasive messages uh, for soft Democrats, for NPPs, uh, independents, even some Republicans um, who probably haven't voted for a Republican in a while. Um, it's one of the reasons why 
why Republicans can't compete statewide. I mean, their party, their brand, whether it's abortion or um, on climate change, it's just toxic to the rest of the, the vast majority of Californians. And it impacts uh, Republicans' ability to compete statewide, even when they don't share as extreme of a colored view uh, on those issues. And yet um, Republicans do seem, maybe not so much in California, although you know, I think they are doing you know, reasonably well in, in holding their seats here. Uh, Republicans are adept, showed themselves at being adept at least somewhat in, in um, uh, talking about the economy and talking about gasoline prices. So to the extent, Rob, maybe you can talk about this, to the extent that you tie, you know, issues related to climate to, to uh, somebody's uh, uh, pay, somebody's wallet, um, you know, I guess, I guess maybe the issue maybe cuts both ways. Well, it does. It's not because, I mean, issue polling shows widespread concern about climate, which is, which is real, but that also then occurs in a vacuum because the flip side is economically, what are the impacts of transitioning um, our, our fuels and our energy? And so, you know, California is ground zero on trying to figure out, you know, what that balance is. And so when you, you know, part of, we, we can talk about gas prices, but gas prices are higher here. One of the reasons, one of the things that we know for sure is the taxes are higher. And a lot of that includes programs um, to pay for climate change mitigation programs that help transition us uh, into, into new fuels, particularly EVs. So, you know, but that, that gets very regressive and you know, uh, energy prices here are higher because of renewable portfolio standards. Like it's very regressive. And so voters don't necessarily understand what those programs are, but when they start feeling the economic impacts, you start getting some correction like I think you're seeing in some Democrat legislative districts as we wait for the rest of the votes to come in over energy prices in San Diego, Sacramento, and Orange County. So, you know, where's the where's the the, the fine line um, to move through, which is what Californians clearly want to be progressive on these issues. But I think, you know, I think Democrats in particular get out ahead of being able to successfully implement programs and fund programs. The press releases are, are easy. The implementation of updating a grid and putting an infrastructure is hard. And then doing that without pricing people out of it and, and moving people off of this being a priority. Right now, I think most you know, middle-class voters would say, no, I want to fix the climate, but I need a little relief at the pump right now. So let's get back to climate when these prices get lower type of, type of scenario. And I think that's somewhat borne out in the results we're seeing in California. Um. So speaking of the legislature, uh, if we must, <laughs> today if we must. Well, uh, my my guess is, and we don't know the outcome of some of these races quite yet. My guess is that 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 um, the Democrats will maintain their supermajority. So should should uh, uh, your boss Nathan uh, veto anything, he could be overridden quite easily, right? Doubt he will, but. Um, but what is the, uh, how are you feeling about the speakership fight uh, between Mr. Rivas and Speaker Rendon? Um, and, and what are the implications for public policy in that speakership fight, the outcome of that? Anybody? 
probably zero impact on abortion rights. Judge. Well, I, I don't think, I mean, I think we here in California are a little beyond, I mean, I'm glad we passed Prop 1, we need to have all the protections we have, but we're certainly in the, you know, access to healthcare fight, um, especially as we're feeling the impact of uh, the bans across the country. So we're actually deep in the weeds. The, the 15 bills that we passed were not, you know, giving more rights. It was really around how we do protections, how we can ensure that, you know, we're the infrastructure and Medi-Cal and it's really in the weeds. Um, and I think with this many new members coming, um, it seems to me the speakership fight is more about um, maybe not policy so much as, as style and how is a speaker, whether it's Rendon or a new speaker going to lead. It's always difficult in the assembly anyways. It, I think having a two thirds majority may seem great. It's more difficult for a Democrat um, leader to try and lead more Democrats. And certainly when they have the capability of doing things like taxes that are, it's easier when you don't have the votes than to actually wrangle votes for something that may not be as popular. And so what is that leadership style going to look like? If it is Rendon, is it going to stay the same? Which traditionally I think he's, you know, has been very public that his leadership style was to really give power back to his chairs. Um, does that work when you have this many new um, members? I, I, I don't know. And if you have a new leader, um, are they going to lead a little bit more traditionally prior to Rendon, which is have a little bit more of a tight hold and, and, and actually have a say over what policies the, the assembly is doing, and then certainly what the relationship is like with leadership on the Senate side. Mm. Um, Victoria, what's your, what's your view? What impact does this have on, on um, environmental issues? Yeah, I can add, I mean, we've worked with Speaker Rendon on climate policy and water efficiency policy. We've also worked well with Assembly Mavis on updating California's oil spill response policies and uh, some sustainable agriculture issues, natural resources bond. So we can work with anybody. And I think it's our job as advocates to figure out how to navigate, um, you know, get your policies through whoever the leadership is. So um, I think how it would impact us broadly, if there is a speakership transition is just that um, partly as Jody alluded to, there could be a different style that we need to learn how to navigate, but also there would be changes in committee chairmanships and that definitely impacts our strategy and we would need to see who those chairs are before we really figure out our legislative agenda. So I wouldn't expect a big difference in terms of the impact on our issues necessarily, but I do think it makes it more incumbent on the advocates and the public to really be uh, take note of a new speaker and figure out who the, not only the chairmanships, but who that speaker's deputies are and, and figure out what relationships you have and where you need to build those relationships. So Rob, I, I would guess that the Republicans role here is to hold, hold their coats and let them fight. Uh, is, there, is there any particular implication as you see it for you know, any of your corporate clients or, or Republicans generally? 
I don't I don't think for Republicans other than Republicans enjoy seeing chaos and unrest and the opposing caucus as as Democrats would with Republicans if it was the other way around. I mean, look, the, the legislature is in a cycle of term limits to turn over. We're getting a lot of it this cycle. We're going to get about as much again next cycle. We're either going to have a new speaker now or in two years. So it, it's just it's just part of turning a page and, a, and really a new legislature. You know, and those of us here in town, a, a very different physical dynamic with them displaced from the Capitol for the next several years. So just a lot of change in Sacramento. You know, to the average Californian, whoever the speaker is, isn't going to matter one whit. Um, there may be differences in the margins, depending on who some of those chairs are, you know, as Victoria and Jody both alluded to. Um, I think the business community writ large is ready to see a change. Um, but you're you're talking about, hopefully, you know, gains in the margins, which is really all the, the business community can really fight for these days. Okay. Uh, Nathan, does it matter to the governor who the speaker is? Uh I've been laughing this entire answer because far be it for me or the governor or whoever to tell the California assembly how to manage its own house, you know, they'll figure it out and we'll keep moving. All right. So well um, done, Nathan. Yes. <laughs> that one. Yeah. Um, so um, why, why don't we talk about uh, two years hence and maybe even six years hence is, is, uh, uh, when when is Governor Newsom going to run for president? <laughs> He's not. He said it many many times. But I'm glad we're Maybe in 2024. He's not. He said he's not. He's not going to. But while we're on Governor Newsom, I think you know if there was one clear winner from uh, from the election nights that we know, uh, it's we got to be talking about Gavin Newsom. I think for the fourth, for the third time in four years, uh, California voters are going to give him a 60 point margin, unlike other blue states like New York, where Dems were on defense and couldn't replicate uh, their 2018 statewide results. Uh, looks like Newsom's going to do that. Um, he's just as strong as he was four years ago. Um, for Democrats in competitive races, his endorsement is more powerful um, than almost anyone else. Uh, rivaling on the state party endorsement, you saw that with Prop 30. I mean, he single-handedly moved the trajectory of that race um, and showed he's willing to lean in uh, uh, in a major way when he when he uh, cares deeply about it. So I think all in all, you know, it was a good night for for Governor Newsom and and shows that, you know, he is, uh, you know, the formidable force uh, for Democrats in the state of California. So, uh, Victoria, would, would Prop 30 have passed but for Governor Newsom? Uh, it's hard to say for sure, because as I said, you know, I just am aware that ballot measures are difficult to pass in a large state like California, uh, especially when you have funded opposition, which was there without the governor, um, but I think that his opposition and the ads he ran definitely eroded support for the measure. There's no question. So I think that that made the difference in the final days. Mm -hmm. And Jody, would Prop 1 have happened without Newsom's support? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that it was important that we had all of the leadership support. Absolutely. Um, and, and let me say this, I, I think um, 
I mean, I can't even imagine us running it and having leaders not being supportive of, of something like that. I think it's important that we're um, on an issue that's very value based, that we're making sure that we're um, all on the same page. But I also, you know, we are now um, forming somewhat of a coalition with other states that are also providing access to out-of-state patients. And what I hear consistently because of what we're doing here in California, not just with Prop 1 and rights, but we're actually making the investments and doing what we can to actually ensure people can be seen um, and, and have access to services. Um, I hear consistently my colleagues saying, do you think your governor would talk to our governor? Because it does get in the weeds about things like Medicaid and things like how, how are we paying for it? How are we ensuring people, you know, providers are protected? It gets in the weeds that people um, have to spend time on. And, and I think um, our governor has sort of gone beyond, even, even with the website that we created, and I know people thought it was a stunt that he was out there advertising in other states, it was strategic as a policy issue because in many states that it was actually illegal, they were trying to make it Ill illegal for providers to advertise in their state. Um, and so it, it was very much a policy that we're, you know, spreading our wings beyond California because of, of our values here. And it, it's it's heard around the country. Rob, what what what's your view of, of Governor Newsom's uh, billboards and such in other states? Did, did it? Well, I what, think so. Well, I I mean, I, I admire Nathan on promoting the, the great victory for his his boss. And I a lot of it, I agree with a lot of what was said. I think Gavin actually was pivotal on the Prop 30 uh, on turning that. I think he can totally take credit for that. Um, but he didn't campaign for reelect. He campaigned nationally and including the, the Johnson to, into red states, including advertising in Florida against Ron DeSantis. So let's just zoom out and go for that juxtaposition, which is a comparison that Newsom has sought over the last couple of months. And I don't know, let's compare Ron DeSantis two nights ago to Gavin Newsom, also a 20 point victory, but in a very different state. A guy that pulled together a coalition that was completely anomalous to any other Republican um, anywhere else in the country. Although, you know, there's, there's smaller state examples of it, like in Iowa, I think that are comparable. But if you wanna go to the big national stage, the way this campaign ends is national television watching a Ron DeSantis acceptance speech with a hell of a mandate for Florida, Kathy Hochul fighting for her life in New York by campaigning against San Francisco. So, you know, a very California- and Gavin Newsom winning at 801. <laughs> California was on the menu in, in both of these states. And so I don't know what that portends to the, to the future. And also, if you have a couple of legislative Democrats that don't come back, and if the Porter results don't go exactly the way Nathan, you know, thinks they will or hopes they do, what was the governor doing in New Mexico? You know, instead of, and I'm not so sure he would have, would have been all that welcome in the heart of Orange, you know, County campaigning for some of these candidates. So, I mean, he was there. I, I, think, it's, I think it's a mixed bag. It's a little bit like giving the Globetrotters a ton of credit for beating the Washington generals. <laughs> well, they, they, they played a hell of a game. I, um, I think just over three times over the last, four years, voters have convincingly, resoundingly said, we're with our governor. And through 
a time period <laughs> where I think all of us can agree there has been so much chaos, so much uh, uncertainty in the world and uh, faced with unforeseen challenges. I mean, you know, this governor is has earned the trust of California voters. And I think the results show that. And I think he largely has it. I just like I go back to not COVID didn't claim the career of a single governor, Democrat or Republican, with the exception of maybe Sisolak anywhere in the country, which is really remarkable. People at the end of the days are trusting the last several years of their governors. My curiosity is to your point, Rob, about Republicans in other states or other folks in other states using California to campaign you know, as a, as a bad, um, how does Kevin McCarthy lead? Well, but I think, I think leading a California values. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, I'm sure would be happy to explain how he would do things differently if he was governor of of no, I know, but I'm just saying he's got to lead nationally from California. And I think that's a very different juxtaposition than Pelosi, who gets to tout California values. I, I, I think Kevin values. will have no trouble bashing San Francisco, just like Governor Hochul did. <laughs> yeah. um, we have a question from Laura Court. Laura Court, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, curious if panelists have any thoughts on what kind of office position Governor Newsom could go after go for after 2026, given his heightened national profile and his apparent reluctance to run for president. Nathan, <laughs> I think he's very excited to be governor for the next four years. And I don't. I honestly, you know, if we did have term limits, my guess is he would love to be governor for the rest of his life. He loves the job, uh, and you know, uh, I can't imagine he would want to do anything else. But it's up to him. Um, well, thing, you know, oh, go, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say what came to mind for me with this question is I could see Governor Newsom being like a John Kerry international climate advisor or climate ambassador and taking the successes of California's climate policies with our strong economy, you know, touting that message around the world. Anybody else with a with a view of what what he well, might I, do like, in 2026? I, I think I think if Newsom decides to run for president, he's formidable. I've, I've been I've been saying that. I think he's doing an outstanding job of rising to the top of the conversation. I think California is a tough sell, um, both in primaries and national or in the general election. But assuming Biden runs, and we can talk about what I think is the false positive the Biden White House got out of this result, and then it's not available. I think it's undeniable, and I'm not Nathan. I'm not trying to bait you to have to comment or deny. But the Feinstein seat becomes an obvious place for him to go. And I think he would be a powerhouse in, in the Senate. He's built for today's modern Senate, um, which you know thrives on uh, those that can get themselves media attention and be effective communicators. So if, to extend a career and to stay relevant, to be a possible uh, uh, candidate in 28, instead of being out of office, I just think that a Senate seat makes a ton of sense. Um, you mean Feinstein's not going to run again? That's the bold prediction from this panel unanimously is that she will not <laughs> seek re-election. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, we have a, we have a question from Mr. Tim Foster. Uh, look ahead question. Do Democrats take the Senate, the U.S. Senate, when all the votes are 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 counted? What's your guess, Jody? I mean, I'm superstitious, so ah. uh, <laughs> I have a hard time. Um, I, I'm going to say yes. 
you're going to say yeah. So so the the three seats are that are in play are are obviously Georgia, Arizona, and and Nevada. Um, Democrats have to take uh, probably are going to win Arizona. Um, but if it comes down to if it comes down to Georgia, I just think it's after going through a cra the craziest probably 2020 a recall or not a recall a runoff you know two months later where it looked like virtually impossible democrats would win and they were able to turn out all of their voters same thing this time around uh with warnock looking like he's he's on top i think democrats do it they eke it out uh in Georgia, and that's largely a function of everybody's really used to voting there now uh, over the last two years. And the red um, wave didn't happen, and I think yeah. people—that's right—that when it they come back to vote. So, so I'm going to agree with Nathan. I think I think he's probably right. Well, well, let me come back to Nevada in a minute. If this goes to Georgia, um, I think turnout becomes easier for the Democrats in a lot of ways. Excuse me. The other thing is Trump. If that guy announces for president before the Georgia runoff, uh, Walker is screwed. The whole thing becomes a proxy referendum on Trump, which is my primary thesis on why there was no wave, um, was a huge Trump effect. The guy's a huge freaking loser. So all that dynamic is, if that goes into play in Georgia, I think it's very problematic. Having said that, I think Clark County mail votes um, put uh, Cortez Mesto back over is my guess at this point, and it doesn't come down to Georgia. Interesting, interesting. Well, since we're on Georgia, um, Rob, this is this one's for you. Um, think 2026, um, excuse me, 2024, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, think 2024, will it, be, uh, will, will it be Governor Kemp or Governor DeSantis or Governor Abbott who gets the Republican nomination if Trump doesn't run? Well, I think the the poll position goes to DeSantis. Um, it's interesting because the question for Republicans is who can gather any momentum to have a few people step out with them and try to try to confront Trump instead of being Hank the Tank streaking through the quad by themselves and then you die a political death. So if DeSantis can put together that coalition, he may be able to clear Trump out of the field, but I don't know if that means he ends up being there. I mean, you know, this is reminds me a lot of, you know, President Perry and President Walker, you know, that, that never happened. So I think we have a long way to go in the Republican politics to sort all that out. I agree with you uh, about looking at governors um, as potential candidates. I don't think it's Abbott in Texas. I just don't think he's that good a politician, to be honest. But but Kemp is interesting. Uh, the governor of Virginia is interesting. Governor Hogan, former governor, now former governor Hogan in Maryland is talking about running. So it, it, I think you could end up with a pretty large, healthy field if Trump does not run. Now, I think he will initially run, but does he last um, will become the question. DeSantis might be the guy to run him out of the race. DeSantis will be able to raise a lot of money. So he'll be able to be yeah. competitive. I, well, he, he might be competitive in the primary. I wonder how he would do in a general election. Well, he hasn't struck me as a particularly warm, fuzzy, likable guy. Well, we don't, you know, that's not necessarily what people look for. But I, so I agree. I'm not like a DeSantis fan. You cannot ignore what he did in Florida against the very middle of the road, you know, professional politician and Charlie Crist. The guy won Hispanics. He won women. He consolidated a huge mandate behind him that he did not have four years prior. 
And I just think if that's not looked at closely, whether you like them or not, I think you're maybe missing what is the huge anomaly of this election so far. Okay, we have a question from Natalie Guess. Um, looking forward, as uh, the younger generations have been leaning more democratic, how much do you think this will affect future elections? And do you think that the youth vote will become more important to politicians? It's always important, it just never happens. But anyway, that was my gratuitous. I mean, I think we're, it's gonna be interesting to look at the turnout and, and what things like mail-in voting and how that changes things. You know, behavior is different now. It's different because of, uh, you know, we don't have to turn people out. We have to get them to lick an envelope and stick it in their mailbox, which is very different. Um, now, for whatever reason with Republican messaging, they're having to turn people out to actually get to the ballot. So um, I think that there is a possibility that young people are voting more because we've made it so much easier for them. We also, behavior is different from the pandemic and people are behaving differently and we're still looking at what that means and what's important to young people um, yeah, people may have to pay attention to, um, both good or bad. I, I agree with Rob that it's important for us to look at what happened with DeSantis and, and us here because we we think those values are so much different than ours that that could never happen. But yet, you know, he's picked up demographics that, that don't seem um, normal in, in how we think about things. So um, I do think we have to look at, at all of those and it's it's going to be interesting. I think the fact that the DNC now has a TikTok, <laughs> and that's for a reason. Um, and so does it, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> right, so does Gavin Newsom. And uh, I, I think we'll have to do an analysis of, of behavior, but I think it will only grow. If we're making voting easier, if people are used to actually doing something from their home, um, that number can only grow. So we only have a few minutes. Um, a question from, from Bob Naylor. Um, Danny, to all four of you, would Newsom appoint himself to Diane Feinstein's seat should she decide to step aside before her term is over? He loves being governor. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's tough to do. Although he's talking about wanting to try to lead his party nationally. I mean, he could, I think, deal with a narrative, but... I love your mug there, Dan. Thank you. Um, Does that ever happen? Uh, be really hard. I think it'd be hard for you to do. That a governor has appointed him or herself in an event of a vacancy like that? I don't know that that's ever happened. So I'm unaware of that. Yeah. But but it's certainly possible. I'm, you know, who knows? Maybe, yeah, yeah certainly possible. Um, Jody, do you see that happening? No, I think, no, no I don't think he would. No. I, I think it, he under, I think he's smart and there'd be a backlash. I mean, yeah. it, I think if a more realistic question, would he appoint someone that would agree not to run and then he would run maybe. What, so this is probably an unfair question given the uh, limited amount of time we have, but, but, you know, Speaker Pelosi has been a force in, 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 on, on a national stage for, um, well, since 1985. Um, uh, and and also has been a force in California, um, I, less less seen. But uh, 
with with her leaving either at the end of this term or or you know retiring before the this term ends the, the term that would begin on january um what impact do you think that has well california loses its most powerful politician by far i, mean, I think even when she was minority leader that probably was was the case as as feinstein's stature in the senate has diminished i think that's been true so who replaces that well let's see who's close to Hakeem Jeffries or whoever's next. I think you'll see some Republicans, Democrat members of Congress in California have been biding their time that will uh, emerge as new leaders. You know, Aguilar, Barra, people like that. Yeah, I mean, Nathan. I think it's a loss for sure, but somebody, I think California will still be somewhere in leadership. There's a lot of California members as some of them are rising up to be stars. We're seeing that and we'll, we'll be in the mix, but it's a loss, definitely. Is there um is there a way to undo Dobbs, Jody? I mean, yes, but we'll see. Uh, it, you know, it, it's going to be a long. This is a long, longer fight than. than is it a fifty-year fight? Is it I a fifty-year fight? I hope not. But I think it's a ten-year fight. Ten-year fight. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, we are uh, we are uh, just about out of time. Uh, Rich Eisen suggests uh, a a. a a Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer ticket, maybe a Whitmer Newsom ticket. Although I don't know, what do you say, Nathan? He loves being governor. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna oh, happen. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, very good. Thank you all for for doing this. Um, uh, Victoria, Rob, Nathan, Jody. Thanks so much. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.